when I was in Sao Paulo, I had a very good friend who was a Jungian psychologist and an author. And she stopped being a a therapist, a Jungian analyst, when a client of hers came in and she said that she was sexually abused as a child. And now she had a child. She felt like sexually abusing her child. She said that that was too much for her and she quit. So I had that in the back of my mind. I'm thinking of becoming a therapist, but I don't know what's going to come in. We discussed how I grew up in the countryside and that um, my, yeah, and some bits about my my upbringing that were not very nice. Um, So where do we go from here, I guess? The question was, how did I grow up, right? Um, and it was in the countryside, and I had a step-parent and, um, who wasn't very nice to me. And I didn't realize how much that shaped my, wor- my world view and what I thought about myself and the world. And I had an IFS session on Monday this week and I talked to some a part of me that was in exile because it was very of course it's not, not nothing is straightforward but the dynamics as I understand now was that I was blamed for everything that was wrong and my step my stepfather was trying to find something wrong with me as a teenager. He was trying to paint me as a rebel, malicious and um, it wasn't true. I don't think it was true. Not the way that he did. And my mother maybe wanted to believe in it. And the conclusion I got was that it was to justify the mistreatment I received. They had to believe there was something wrong with me, that I was malicious or rebellious. Because then, of course, that fit the bill of why they um, didn't treat me very well. So I understand that now, looking back at that part of me who was there receiving the abuse and um, and really wondering whether I was malicious and a rebel because I had this feeling in me that everything I did was wrong. And of course, it's a part of me that thought that, why other parts of me thought it was okay, you know, so I've always struggled to do things for myself. I always struggled to do well at school. I've struggled uh, to accomplish the things I wanted to accomplish. So I always wanted to write a book. I always wanted to do a PhD. I always wanted to do those things and failed because at some point something felt 
I felt something in me felt that I just wasn't good enough to do those things so why I shouldn't try and I had those voices resonating in my head that I was lazy I wasn't dedicated I just wanted the easy way out I just um, was never going to achieve anything and that was what I've heard as a teenager and there was a lot of pressure in me to do on me to do things in a certain way which obviously I didn't respond very well to because no one responds very well to being controlled so what was it that they wanted you to do? they wanted me to go to a specific university which was the only one that was free because it was government funded and the only subjects they did there were maths, physics, geography, stuff that you would learn to become a teacher. And that didn't really seduce me. And I wanted something else, but there wasn't an option. It wasn't an option to be or do anything else other than one of those five subjects. And to get into this university was very difficult because there was a lot of competition for a free university from kids who received private education or kids who had a home where there wasn't an alcoholic mother, you know, which prevents you from studying quite a bit. Uh, so I was expected to, to beat private school kids at an exam when I didn't go to private school, I didn't have a functioning mother at home. I, I had an absent stepfather, but still they wanted me to do that Herculean effort, which was beyond my capacity. And I did, somehow, I did, but it was really difficult. And the process was very painful and I had I absorbed I internalized this idea that I was the reason why it was difficult. I was not dedicated enough. I was not hardworking enough. I didn't understand that life needs a lot of effort and I was lazy or you know, I believed it for a long time. And I think I believed it up until Monday. <laughs> and now I'm talking about it, it is just so different because I wouldn't be able to really talk about it. It was so ingrained in me as truth that it wasn't accessible. I just didn't know why I found it really difficult to dedicate myself to something and why I failed to try harder and believe in myself I just up until now I didn't have the self-belief um, or it was somewhat limited mm -hmm. so it has been quite liberating to have this last session to be able to see that um, these beliefs were interjected they were not real that what I did actually was quite you know I did relatively well given the circumstances so that changes everything I feel like now okay I can apply for that 
PhD, I can start that book, you know, I, I can I can try and I'm not lazy, I'm not malicious, I'm just normal, I guess, like everyone else. Yeah, which is probably super obvious to everyone else around you, it's just not how you see yourself. Is in like... Yeah, I always <laughs> felt guilty, you know, I always felt like I was wrong, that I was doing something wrong. There was something malicious about me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't. It wasn't accessible. And the FS session took me there, you know, and I saw exactly the moment. And I saw the also several moments of what was said and the situation and the phone calls and, you know, and I saw all of that. And looking back from this adult eyes, I can see very clearly, okay, that's something that was done to you, not something that you were. And it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So going right back to the start, where was your dad in this picture? My mother didn't want me to meet him because he was schizophrenic and quite paranoid. And back in the day when they met, he used to take a lot of drugs as well so his mother and father um his mother was a company owner she she created her own it consultancy com- company in the 70s so in she was Sao Paulo. in sao paulo so she was very determined a career determined woman no time for family she only had the family because that's what you did in the 50s. But she had no time for family. So not very affectionate. My mother didn't like the idea of them as a family, as an environment for me growing up. And there was more to it. Things that now I will never know because they all passed, passed away. But I did get hints of stories, you know, of a lot of conflict. Were they together? No, for long. They were together for maybe a couple of years, if that. And then when my mom discovered she was pregnant, she wanted a baby, but she didn't want a relationship. So she ran away. And that was you? And that was me, yeah. So she ran away from Sao Paulo as well? She stayed in Sao Paulo because Sao Paulo is a megalopoly. You can easily disappear. That's easily done. So she did that. She disappeared. And then how did she end up in the countryside? That's where she was from. So she went back. When you were how old? Five. Uh, six. Yeah, five, six. And you didn't have siblings with... No. They came... They, my siblings are with my stepdad. Okay. So how did she meet him? At a carnival. He was 10 years younger than her. Wow. Yeah, he was only 22 and she was 32. And what was she doing? Um, my mother was a model and a TV dancer. Like those, the people that dance in the background on TV. She did that. Cool. Yeah. And what did he do, your stepdad? He was studying... He was 22. He was really just uh, in a university at that point and doing some part-time work or whatever. 
And then at what point did they move? Pretty quickly. Um, my mum sold. My mum bought a parcel of land in Florianopolis, which was at the time a village of twenty thousand people. I've been there. You have, and you have been there probably when it was two hundred thousand people. Yeah. So they bought a a parcel of land in in the end south of the island where you couldn't really get to very easily. They built a house in there, but he couldn't find a job because there weren't many jobs. And she wasn't working? No, she had an apartment in Sao Paulo which she rented out and the money from that paid the bills. Kind of only just though. And so then from there they went to the countryside? Uh, from there, they, that was kind of the countryside, but just a different countryside. Florianopolis was the capital, but it was very small. That's when all the domestic violence started. So my mom got pregnant and then there was my sister and then she got pregnant straight away with my brother, which she didn't really want to. They, they were epic fighting because he couldn't find a job and my mother was worried about that and uh, blamed him for not trying hard enough um, and him just being a kid just would beat her up. Huh. And how old were you? Six, seven, eight. So he would beat her up? Mm-hmm. And would he... Was it like during drinking or after drinking or not? Oh no, completely sober, <laughs> completely sober. There was no need. He, he didn't need any any alcohol at all. Actually, he was quite proud that he didn't drink much. Huh? And you were witnessing this. I was witnessing. I was getting my fair share of beatings as well. From him. From him. For what? Um, for making jokes, for dropping things on the floor, for being a child. Just somewhat randomly, like, depending on the day. Yeah, like I couldn't do anything wrong. And that definition was very strict, that almost everything was wrong. Huh. So is that like how he had power or something, when he felt... Powerless I, for not having a job or something. He felt powerless for not having a job, and he, I know now that he carries a lot of he carry a lot of trauma himself. So his father died when he was very young, and he had eleven siblings. So his mom brought them up, and that she she was one of the youngest. So she couldn't bring everyone up really. So he ended up going to live with an with one of his sisters who was already married, and he's um, they weren't very nice to him. They didn't beat him, but they didn't. He had to work when he was like twelve. So um, and he always had this at the time. You know, he he had a an anger issue. My mother was aggressive. She's always been because my father, my my biological father, told me stories about that when we met. 
and he said you know that she would jump on him being physically aggressive so I think the escalation would would go as far as it went it was partially because of her you know she was physically aggressive she always has been and what part of Brazil did your stepdad grow up in? in the same that she did the south of Brazil in the countryside that's how they met so she went back for carnival and actually her her brother is married to his sister wow so they always knew each other huh so they kind of it was kind of a re-encounter and how did you find that out about his family Oh, we always knew because um, his sister is my auntie, was always my auntie. And she would tell, explain why? We always knew the story. About the family. About the family, but she was an older sister and she married my mom's brother. And we always knew who they were and we always knew that life hasn't been easy for them. And we knew that they lost their father really young and we knew that they all had to work and so on. But because she was 10 years older um, and her the older sisters were very close and they helped each other and they kind of looked after each other. The younger people, the younger boys, they, they were a little bit less looked after, I think. And would he apologize for his behavior? Did he ever? I don't remember if he did. My mother did. My mother did. Um, but my f- my stepfather, I don't think he has. She apologized years later or at the time? Oh, years later, yeah. Was hers more to do with alcohol or it was just two things? There were two things. Um, she had... it. I do think she had some sort of disorder. She was extremely violent and um, aggressive and it would switch like that, you know. If anything upset her, she would switch and it would that anger would come. And she would just physically... And she would just physically beat us, yeah. But it was worse since my stepdad came into the picture. Before that, I don't have any recollection of that happening. So up to when I was five, I I don't remember anything of the sort. I remember her being extremely angry. Um, But I don't remember any physical aggression. I think he made it worse. And did you know that because in the first episode we recorded you said that it was like a common thing that happened in the or you said I guess in the countryside there's a lot of domestic violence. Yeah. So did you understand like that was happening in other households? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean back in the day and where it was, you know, parents would beat children for being naughty. What I didn't know is that I wasn't being naughty. I just assumed that I deserved everything. And did you talk to friends about it? No. No. Would you have bruises and stuff? 
Yeah. And would the teachers ask anything? Oh, the teachers don't really get involved in that sort of thing over there. They wouldn't. It's not like in here. You don't have like a safe uh, safeguarding policy for children in Brazil where it was. Maybe they have it now, but back in the day they wouldn't get involved. Sometimes the children got, the teachers got involved mostly when I was a teenager because I had also my brother and my sister at school and uh, they were having problems with with us um, misbehaving like skipping classes and they're thinking well just the three of them you know kind of there's something wrong and then because people talk and my mother was going out in the evening and um, they they realized something was wrong but nothing was really there was nothing really they did nothing they wouldn't what was she doing your mom when she was going out Oh, uh, she would just get really drunk and make out with very young boys, like in their twenties, and um, yeah, just behaving generally inappropriately. Um, punched her. She went to fight with a friend of hers who decided she was too drunk to drink, too drunk to drive. So her friend took her car keys, and then my mom tried to punch this friend and um, somehow punched the floor and broke her arm, broke, broke her hand. That's how strong she punched this lady, or didn't. Um, she also been involved in car accidents where she just drove through a red light. Again, 6 a.m. in the morning, drunk. And would you have to take care of her? She wanted me to take care of her, but I didn't. That was a reason of much. <laughs> and where would your stepdad be when this was happening? In a different city. So my when we were living in Florianopolis, my sister and my brother were very young and the police was coming around the house all the time because the neighbors would call the police all the time. And I just remember the police coming in again. I was in hospital all the time because of my asthma, because I couldn't breathe in the house. Um, then my mom's older sister decided it was enough, so she came and picked everyone up. And this was um, just before that, no, just after that, my aunties took me to the hospital because I couldn't walk anymore. And they found out I was almost dying of pneumonia. And uh, Paolo, my stepdad, said I was pretending to get attention. It was really, really unfair. It was so bad. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything. Yeah, so they picked us up and then they brought us to live with them for a while. And then, of course, when we were there, Paolo wouldn't do anything. My stepdad wouldn't really hit anyone. Um, but then as soon as they bought a house, we moved in there, it started, but then he, my mom decided to separate, kind of partially separate from him, and he went and found a job in a different city, so he would only come every two weeks on the weekend. So that was good. And they were still kind of together? Yeah. And did you have a good relationship with your step-siblings? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, half siblings. Half, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved them very much. And you were kind of on the same team. Yeah, I was kind of looking after them, helping my mom look after them because she was alone. Did he treat them differently to you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but he was still pretty mean to them though. He just had. It just looks like he has some disorder as well. I can't see that being, you know, normal. Do you have a relationship with him now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's changed. For good? Yeah. He married again, had another child, and that child gets treated a lot better. At what point did that happen? When my mum decided to separate from him. That's when she started drinking. Huh. So he was visiting, but they weren't really together. Yeah, well, they were, they were married, and he was coming every two weeks. Then my mom separated. Then he didn't come every two... Well, he came every two weeks, but he wouldn't stay in the house anymore. He would stay at his sister's. And he would pick us up to spend the weekend with us. Then she started drinking. I was 15, then um, then it got really messy. So the, from the, the, there was a period where we lived in the countryside, so between I was 10 and 15, that was better, it was less intense, but if, he would still come every two weeks. And that was when the whole thing about me being a malicious teenager was going on, you know, but he wasn't even in the house, but yeah, it was a very strange period. Okay, so, and then they got divorced at some point. Yeah. Then my mom started drinking, then my mom found herself a husband who was 20 years younger. I moved out. I then found my my real father because they had no other option. If there's any way for me to leave this environment, that's my ticket. I don't care if he's a schizophrenic or what. I'm just going. So I did. How old were you? 16. I moved out when I was 18. Um, so he came, my father came to pick me up. It was very strange. We look the same, we have the same face. And, um, we drove up to Sao Paulo and it was really hot. So as soon as I arrived, his fa- his, we went to his mother's apartment first. And as soon as I arrived, I opened the, um, the, the freezer to get some ice. And there was a dead dog in there. <laughs> Just kind of looking at me like this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that tells Why? you a lot. Because the dog died and she didn't know what to do with it and she didn't want to bury it, so she put it in the freezer. The grandma? Yeah. Your grandma? Yeah. And that was the first time you met her? Yeah, well, I've met her dead dog before we met her. (laughs) How did you find your dad? Uh, There were yellow pages. I knew the name of the company she owned, so I called the company. And I said, um, I'm David's daughter. Huh. And just left a message and left my phone number and thought, they might call, they might not. 
And they did. So. And they were welcoming to you? Yeah, they were. Then I went there and I worked with them. The company was about to close down though, but I did get a good two years to get a lot of experience, meet a lot of people. So you didn't end up going to that university? Or like, how does this fit in with... I did. I went to the university and I did one year. When you were 17? Of mathematics, yeah. Yeah, in Brazil you get into uni when you're 17. You finish school. I finished school between 16 and 17, so... And the uni was near where your mum was? Yeah, it was in that, in that town, yeah. But after a year, it was like you couldn't keep? Well, it was maths, but it was kind of teaching maths. Um, and um, I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to do something else. I didn't know what. No, I really... A friend of my mum was a psychoanalyst. And he gave me a job as a 16-year-old, a part-time job, to transcribe his sessions. So, not the session, he would make voice notes after the session, and he would give me to type it in to paper. And I was fascinated. I was like, wow, this is amazing, I'd love to do that. And um, so I had that in my head. Then I went to Sao Paulo, and I tried to do, for some reason, a meteorology degree, but I didn't pass the physics exam because it was very hard. And I then uh, started a psychology degree there. And you were living with your dad? Uh, I was living with my grandparents for a while, but then my grandma was at the end of her business and she was in a lot of that so she sold the apartment sold the whatever she had of the company and moved to the sao paulo countryside and i stayed behind with a friend of mine who said i could live with them so when you were growing up at school did you manage to have a good time and you had good friends and whatever or it was kind of just no, I had a good time. I had a good time because I never really took I never really took the the beatings or the abuse too too hard, you know, at the time. I was like this is normal. This is just what parents do. Mm. And I had my cousins and my cousins were really fun to spend time with. And um and I and I had my siblings as well which were really cute and I played with them a lot and I played with my friends. So at the time, you know, I had a good childhood. I was happy. I was always a very happy child. And what were the things you enjoyed doing? I enjoyed I enjoyed uh, roller skating. I enjoyed um, playing with my cousins, um, playing risk, <laughs> playing chess. My family, everyone played chess. It was fun. Doing jigsaw. Um, yeah. And you were, in the last episode, you mentioned reading a lot. And, and you... I read a lot. I spent a lot of time at home or in the hospital as well because of asthma. And during a while, so my, my, my parents wouldn't let us go to our friend's house. We would play more with my cousins, but they wouldn't let us go to our friend's house. Now that I'm saying it, I'm kind of thinking maybe they were worried about what I was going to say. 
So we just stayed within the family. But um, I spent a lot of time at home reading and my mom used to read as well. I don't, you must know Paulo Coelho. I read all his books at the time. I was only 12. Huh. Like the alchemist. Yeah. yeah, all of them. It was an obsession. And he was releasing books at the time as well. So whenever there was a new one, we would go and get them. And my mom read them as well. Oh, that was nice. And you said you found Carl Jung when you were 12 as well. Yeah, I must have been 14. And then, of course, I was transcribing those sessions, those notes. And then I, that's when I learned about Freud. Because hmm. um, he was a Freudian psychoanalyst. He was a psychoanalyst, yeah. Huh. So, but he wouldn't specifically talk to, so much about Freud. It was more... Like he would mention something here and there, and then I would go on the internet and find out. Then I got uh, there. I got his book, which I still have in Portuguese, as clinical cases. Uh, Ana O. Oh. Huh. That that made a good impression. That that made a massive impression on me, definitely. How old were you? Sixteen. Huh. So you were super interested in psychology. Yeah, I was. I was. I was disappointed at my degree because uh, the degree was a lot more... It was fun, you know, it was science-based. I started there and I finished, I did it again here. And um, of course it's all CBT, it's all science and stuff. I didn't really feel so inspired by it because it was a bit like... um, This is what happens when we cut the little finger of a monkey, you know. the experiments were cruel. In Brazil, we also had a, a, a rat. So each two, each two alumni would get a rat and you train the rat for a year. And then you write up on the training of the rat and then the rat would be killed and desiccated. Why would it be killed? Oh, because otherwise, what would you do with it? Huh. It's bizarre, isn't it? I, I was very upset by that, pet? actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't because I didn't have my own house. Huh. If you wanted to keep or it as a pet, it. you could, but they wouldn't be able to pass them on to the next cohort. because oh, it's already being trained. Because it's being trained, yeah. I thought huh. that was very cruel. I didn't like that at all. Okay, so then were things better when you left and you were able to do what? you were really interested in oh yeah definitely moving to Sao Paulo was a big move and did you stay in close contact with your mum like was she upset with you or no no for a while I didn't speak to her for a long time which I now regret but at the same time that was what I could do at the time and what was your dad like completely nuts completely crazy he would uh, build a... So the last we were speaking, he was uh, building a spaceship. And he would take all of us into the spaceship because the spaceship would go somewhere really nice. And uh, his girlfriend put on his... Um, when you have those flowers on on the... on the What do you call the On what? When you die, you put in a... Oh, what oh, you put in? Yeah. A flower arrangement or something. 
Yeah, so she put on the message that said, oh, see you in the spaceship. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was very, he was very sweet and loving, but he was mad as a hetta. So he couldn't work? No, he couldn't work. Did he have medication for schizophrenia? Ah, they, he didn't take them. <laughs> he didn't want to take them. Huh. But he was able to have a, like, relationship with that. His girlfriend. Yeah, they were on and off. I mean, they were together for about 20 years, but they were on and off. Because hmm. it was too much for her as well. So he had to be supported by his parents? Yes. Yes. And he died recently as well? Yes. And, huh. So what was that like for you getting to know this person who you haven't known your whole life? It was very interesting. I was very curious. I wanted to know everything about him and I wanted to know everything about my family. And I learned good things and I learned bad things. I mean, my grandma started working at IBM when she was 19 in the 40s, you know. That was pretty inspiring, I thought. I thought maybe I'm not destined to be shit like my mom led me to believe, you know. She wanted me to stay in that countryside town, be safe, look after her old age, you know. So it was quite good that she blew it all off because if she didn't separate and didn't become an alcoholic and then didn't go on to marry this 20 year old guy, maybe I would have stayed. So I left and that was a good thing. Did she stay with that 20-year-old guy? No. It lasted like, I don't know, a couple of years. Did you meet him? Yeah. And he was like, similar to your age? Yeah, yeah. I guess I was 18, 16, 17, 18. He was 26 or something like that. At that age, the gap is still quite high, isn't it? So I didn't feel like he was my age at the time. But if you look back and thinking someone who is six, seven years older than me is my age (laughs) now. Huh. Huh. Okay. So was there a part of you drawn to psychology because you wanted to understand what was going on? Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. But it's more from a philosophy side of things. It's a more in also spiritual in a way. You know, it's more like, hmm, what's the meaning of life, you know? Hmm. What are we meant to do here? What is the experience that we are experiencing, you know? What is it that we're doing here, you know? And from a young age, you were interested in that? Yeah, from a young I remember very young thinking, what's the meaning of life? Very, very little. I was thinking, why are we alive? Huh. So I guess in that way, the psychology was disappointing when it's more like about the... Yeah, how people behave, like uh, the, the testing, you know, which, yes, it, it led us to many breakthroughs and it's really important but it's just not something that I am going to engage it's not how I see people I don't like the mechanicist 
point of view, mm-hmm. which there is a mechanic. There is a mechanic element to our bodies, and there is a mechanic element to our minds. That is true, but I'm not interested in that so much. I'm interested in the subtlety. You know, what is it? We assign meaning to things. Can I deviate a little bit? Okay, I'm doing this MIT philosophy course, Minds and Machines, and they're debating whether AI can think. And they brought up the problem of John Searle, and he said, John Searle said, I don't know if that's how he pronounced his name, he gave the Chinese, uh, is I think it's a Chinese room thought experiment, so he says, let's say that you are uh, in this Chinese room and you have all these Chinese characters available to you and you don't know what each one of those mean, but you do have a set of rules that you can manipulate them with. So there is a certain order where they go, and there is a certain pattern where they tend to be together and you know these rules, you know those patterns, but you don't know what it mean. And someone, when someone asks a question from outside the room, they show you a series of Chinese uh, symbols in a certain order, in a certain pattern, for which you know how to respond using Chinese symbols to respond equivalently to that signal. So they give you a signal and you respond with another signal, but you don't know what you're saying. So they're saying this is AI. It's a, it has syntax, but it doesn't have semantics. We have semantics. So we attach meaning, we have meaning. You know, what is this meaning? What is love? What is hope? You know, what, how... This is the magic of being alive. I always found that fascinating. Mm. This is kind of a magic. Mm. Yeah, I feel like it's very intuitive that I don't understand when people are having a conversation of like, can AI like replace humans or something? It's like, what? It's like humans made this. Like, how can... It's like there's something about being a human that you can't recreate because it's like yes I don't know, like I feel it's like haven't you for anyone it's like don't you like feel all these like random emotions and things you feel not just emotions just like dreams mm. well now you might be able to use the Chinese room experiment because that that really did for me you know this is it the, the AI does not have meaning it does not know what it's saying mm. It gives you the the letters, but it doesn't know what they mean. It doesn't know what the words mean. Yeah. Isn't yeah, that makes sense. Huh. Okay. So, where? What was your path? Did you feel lonely at this point in your life? I always felt lonely. Mm, I think. So when when I was little, me and my mom lived in a flat and my mom wouldn't let go of me. So I didn't have many other kids to play with. So when I went to the countryside with my cousins, I was happy. 
But then when I went to Florianópolis, I was also alone. But I was going to school, so it would be better. But then growing up, it was like my brother and my sister were a different level of creatures. And my mom was a different level of creature. And I couldn't see my friends. So, yeah, I... And I always felt lonely as well because I didn't have my nuclear family. I was always in someone else's home. And when I went to to live with my with my father and my grandma, I mean, you know, they they were strangers really. And then they moved away anyway. They moved away and then I was living with my friend and her father and that was actually really nice, but they didn't stay in the flat very often. So wow. He was a doctor and he only used the apartment Tuesdays and Thursday evenings when he worked there. And my friend was a uni, so she would only be there on uni days. So whenever that was, maybe Monday to Thursday. So I would spend the weekends alone. And did you enjoy that or not? Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And where did you go from that after your degree? I came here. So I didn't finish the degree. On the sec- after, at the end of the second year, my this family kind of fostered me, even though I was quite old to be fostered, but they did. You know, they took me to their Christmas, New Year's, uh, gave me presents on my birthdays, you know. Um, they were really, really nice to me. Easter is big in Brazil, you know, they always took me away and um so they between themselves were kind of thinking it would be good for me if i went to the us to be an au pair and one of them in the family had a travel agency and they could arrange that for me they would charge me but i would pay them only once i was earning and all i needed was a travel license for the life of me I couldn't get I couldn't pass the driving last the the driving test oh all you need was a driving license yeah huh. I couldn't pass the driving test I could drive I could park I could uh, stop and start at the hill the driving test was a disaster every time you would just get really nervous I would get really nervous and shake and make lots of mistakes and, oh, fuck this. So I I said, oh, okay, well, I can't go to the US, but now I'm kind of geared up for getting out of the country. Where can I go? And someone on the internet said, you can go to London. London is quite a fun place. You can get a student visa at the airport. You just need money and the proof that you're studying in Brazil. And um, and you can enroll in a course in there full-time and find self-accommodation and they'll give you at the airport. And I did that and that's what, I ha- what happened. Huh. So had you left Brazil at that point? No. And how did you meet that friend's family? That friend whose family looked after you? In Sao Paulo, and we lived in the same building. And then you just got to know them? Yeah, so this building was really fun actually because everyone would come down, like the people the same age. 
the kind of people in their 1920s, they would come down to talk. There was like a garden uh, with some seats. And um, I came down, of course, you know, started chatting. So that was that was how. That's so nice that they yeah. looked after you. Oh, yeah. And was your mum trying to get into contact at this point? No, she was too busy trying to stay married, I guess. Because that must have been very painful at, like, Christmas or those times. I blocked it out. I blocked it out. It was just like, I'm living a new life, and that's... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very lucky that they looked after me. Were you still in contact with your siblings and cousins and things? Somewhat, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would still go back sometimes and and spend the weekend with my mom and my brother and my sister, or whatever they were, if they were with my stepdad, and stay a weekend there. But I wouldn't be calling, you know, there wouldn't be like a conversation going on. How are you? That wasn't a thing. Mm. How far away is it? Oh, far. You needed to get a, an overnight bus, like 600 miles or something like that huh okay so then so how old were you when you came to London 23 and you were just like I'm gonna go and figure it out yeah just landed in Heathrow and got the Piccadilly line to Kingsbury Park where the address you know they gave me the address of my accommodation who booked your accommodation I did (laughs) and what was it it was a shared house full of Brazilians I shared a room with another two girls didn't mind and you were studying yeah then I was doing an English course I couldn't speak English for the life of me (laughs) (laughs) so that was part of it you had to come and study yes um I wanted to, the doctor who fostered me, when I told him my plans, he said, why don't you then, why don't you do a course, an English course in here, finish your university? I said, it's not just the language, it's the culture. You know, I I understand that to learn language, you need to be absorbed in the culture. So I want to do that. I also want to understand, you know, I want to see places, I want to meet people, which obviously won't happen if I stay here. So he said, fair enough. And actually gave me $2,000 to bring with me. As a gift? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was really good. And how long did you think you would stay when you came over? I wanted to stay six months, but when I arrived, I didn't like it. So I wanted to stay three months. And then what changed? I had a boyfriend there at the time and he cheated on me. A boyfriend here? There. Oh. So I was going to go back to, to be with him and he cheated on me and I was thinking, well then I don't have to go back. Huh. I was going to go back but I wanted to go back. I missed Brazil. I missed my friends. I missed my family. I missed the sun, the food. I didn't like London at first, you know. It's cold, it's 
expensive. I didn't see how I could possibly make it here. What month did you arrive? Oh, August. Okay, so that was... That wasn't so bad, but as soon as it started getting cold, I was like, where is this going? (laughs) It's 3 p.m., it's dark. What's happening? I don't know what's going on. I couldn't speak the language. I used to cry, you know, because it was difficult. Someone stole my mobile, went to the police station trying to report it. Could I report it? You know, I could barely speak. So I realized, look, I have no rights here. I'm not really a person here. Why am I staying? You know, so I had no intention of really staying. But my heartbreak was so painful that I also couldn't... I, I could go back, but I wasn't completely inclined. I was thinking if something happens and I happen to stay, then I might. And then I met this guy in here and we were together for a while and then he decided he wanted to marry me. Where was he from? He was born here. So things started turning around when you started dating him? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, he was a native, so he knew how to get around. How did you meet? On the tube. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. In Marylebone. Huh. And so you were just studying English, Mm -hmm. living in Finsbury Park. Mm -hmm. Could you work? Or how did you have money? Um, I had money. I had money. Um, I had saved a lot. I was working in Sao Paulo. I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to pay food. Um, I got the $2,000, you know, which was a lot of money at the time, 16 years ago. I also had sued the company I was working for in Brazil. And they paid me for what? Discrimination against my gender. They were paying the boys more than they were paying the girls to do the same job. I asked for a pay rise, they didn't give me, I got enough evidence and uh, went to took them to justice and they made them pay me a large sum. Huh. In five installments. And I was going to be here for six months, so for me that was perfect. And then what did you do after you finished the English course? Well, then this crazy person said, I don't want you to go back, stay with me, let's get married, so you can stay. So I did. Huh. After six months? Yeah. Was he During same... six months. It was before my visa expired. Was he same age? Yeah, same age. And then what happened? He started drinking. And, um, I mean, we were not the most well-behaved people, right? We used to smoke weed, we used to go to parties, and uh, we were young and we didn't care. Where are you living at this point? Uh, North London somewhere. In wherever he was? Like uh, moving we moved into a room. We rented a room. He got me a job at his... Um, he got me a job 
at the company he was working for, he was very good to me. He was very good to me. Did you have a proper wedding? Hmm? Did you have a proper wedding? We had a little wedding, yeah. Little one. Did his family come? Yes, they did. And they were supportive and... I don't know if they were very supportive. His family were always very good people. His father was very good. Um, he was very understanding. I don't know if he's alive, but I hope they are. They're quite young still, so I think they are alive. Wait, him or the parents? The parents. Um, they the and him English. as well. They the father is Turkish Cypriot, and the, and the mother was born here. So they were very family oriented, they welcomed me, you know, they respected his decision, even though he was very young, we were very young, they gave us food. Um, so I, I felt, actually that was it, I felt so held, I felt so welcome in that house, that I had no desire to go back to my life in Brazil where I had no one and I always felt like the outsider and I thought I'm gonna go back in there I'm gonna go back to lonely weekends you know empty houses I don't want that anymore I wanted to stay so that you know that family was the reason why I stayed I felt so welcome I liked Sundays having dinner together with his family you know I liked it I liked that they came to see us when we were ill, you know, I liked it, all of this. Um, but we were young, you know, I didn't have the language I have today. And even today I still have moments when I struggle. But back in the day I didn't have the language, he didn't have the language. We often miscommunicated. Um, I started studying again because I wanted to finish my degree and everything. So I was studying in the evening, working through the day. I asked him to study as well. He tried, he started, but I think he became depressed. And at the time I didn't know. And looking back, I think he became depressed. And then he stopped studying and he started drinking. And um, and um, what we, we, were, we weren't going out anymore, we weren't, you know... What were you both doing for work? Working on the shop. Oh, what was the shop? Uh, it was an electric shop, like electrical supplies. His family shop? No, uh, just the shop. Huh. Okay, so it was like you stopped going out and having fun, but he was just drinking. Yeah, he was kind of drinking after work. Um, we had a video game, you know, he played a lot of video games. I played some as well, you know, but it wasn't like... It wasn't the life I wanted to live, you know. I enjoyed the family side of it, but it wasn't the social side of it. Mm. Did you have a good group of friends? Not really. No, there wasn't a lot of socialization, not a lot of, you know. And you weren't like super connected to the Brazilian community? Yeah, uh, no, no, in here, no, no. I had lots of friends in Sao Paulo, you know, I kind of had mm. a more of a social life in there and here, I really missed it. 
and then maybe he felt inadequate for not being able to provide that for me you know looking back you know I must I could I think I might have led him into depression really no well somehow you know I it was a real shock for me to move the new culture mm. and maybe he felt responsible so it's like a codependent thing because it's like not for someone to be responsible for that partner's social life right? when you're 23 yeah yeah right he was like oh I brought her from abroad you know oh because he convinced you to stay yeah and now she doesn't like it it's my fault yeah but it was like consensual yeah it was consensual but I wasn't mature enough to know at the time I think I did blame him you know thinking oh I didn't come for this and then he didn't know how to do what to do about it under pressure started drinking which made it worse then yeah then that didn't work out so what happened from that after two and a half years we separated and um I then had to get on with my life on my own. So was that really painful? It was very difficult. His family didn't like it at all and I understand them. He was very upset. I was very upset. There was a lot of drama. But it was you being like, I need... But it was me, yeah. I mean, I I knew that wasn't going to go anywhere good the way it was. Not for me, not for him. Mm. And so you decided to stay? At that point I was at uni, so I wanted to at least finish that. I was thinking still of going back. So you got a place for yourself? Yeah, I stayed in that place that we were. He went back to his parents, which was also a good thing. I really thought that would be good for him. Uh Uh-huh. And then what happened from that? Oh, then I dated a married man. That was a nightmare. But it didn't last long. Um, It was very enriching because now I know what that is like and I understand when people see married man, you know, kind of what goes on. He did separate from and divorced his wife eventually. But then by the time he did that, I didn't want him anymore. <laughs> it was kind of a defense, you know, it was kind of, it was just too much suffering. It's just a horrible, horrible experience for someone. For him? For me. To see a married man, it's just horrible. It's the worst thing you can do. Because you feel guilty all the time oh more than guilty you feel used you are a secret Uh huh so you are being lied to all the time the wife is being lied to all the time it's just unfair on everyone hmm how did you meet him on a pub and did you know no at the beginning no huh okay so it's a situation where because you know I guess people go some people are attracted to that right Mm -hmm. and they go 
No, I didn't know. You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. if you, I, I suppose like maybe if you work together and you know the person you married and you go like, oh, you know, I would love to have an affair with that married person. No, that was not like that. Yeah. Met him at the pub. Um. One of his friends, his work colleagues were there. His his work colleagues told my friend that he was married and he denied. And I thought they were just pulling his leg. Um, he was and still is incredibly handsome and charming. He's an artist. It's just he he would talk about anything. He was extremely cultured. English um, as well. English, yeah, posh English, like oh gorgeous and I just fell for him you know and when did you find out he was married pretty soon but it didn't take me long to fall for him anymore and also I didn't think I would ever meet anyone like him and did he tell you like he was gonna leave his wife and yes blah, blah, blah. yes and like he only wanted to be with you and whatever. yes yes exactly huh and did his wife ever find out about you, or you don't know? I don't think she did. I don't think she did. Do you think there were other women as well? No, no. Unless he was a magician. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you together? Mm, I think it was a couple of years, you know. And what were you doing at this time? We weren't necessarily in a relationship. Um, we were kind of drinking bodies who would have sex. But he would text me all the time. He would give me a lot of attention. And it was quality attention. You know, they were quality conversations. He elevated my, my brain. I was craving that. Because I went from Sao Paulo, who was very, is a very intellectual place, to London, to be with people who just didn't have that level of education. Working in the shop, you know. The people at uni were, but I couldn't barely see them, you know, we stood it in the evening. Now he was, he was very well educated, well read and artistic and, you know, it was just, we would go to exhibitions, we would, you know, it was just, what I needed at the time. Was he a similar age? No, he was 10 years older. And so it was like an emotional connection as well. Yeah, yeah. And de- would he like depend on you emotionally? I don't know. Like I... you could share stuff that you were feeling and whatever. Yeah, he would. Which at the time I didn't have the maturity to take as well, you know. He's talk- he was talking about cognitive dissonance, you know. Oh, I don't want to leave my kids, but I want to be with you. And on my mind, it's like, but it's not fair. <laughs> you know, it's your, your wife is being... Your wife is not free to find someone who actually loves her. Huh. And even though she says she doesn't want to be free, that's, she doesn't really know what she's saying because... Obviously, she didn't want to lose him, but I'm sure she's better off now. Were you able to to depend on him as like a genuine no friend or person? In your a life? friend, yeah, just a friend. Like I could talk. We we would chat a lot on WhatsApp. You know, there was constant conversations. 
but I would only see him once a week. But if something went wrong, you could call him for help or not really? I never really called anyone for help. Huh. You just deal with stuff on your own? Yeah. Hmm. Which was actually... I felt really held in England as well when my separation happened and I was alone and I was broken and I had I went to my GP I went to you know the DWP they gave me a, a little the Department of Working Pensions they they gave me housing benefit um, oh. I had my GP gave me antidepressants and sent me to therapy I had a free dentist, you know, kind of, I felt really held by the system, by the government. Hmm. Um, I remember that very clearly, thinking, okay, well, thank God I'm in a country where you feel quite held. Yeah, I guess because of your immigration status, because like, I don't get access to that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I understand that. It was a big difference from when I first arrived Yeah. to then when I was separated and it was I was uh, a resident. Yeah. Huh. And what were you doing? So what did you do after you finished uni and stopped working in the shop? I found a job. I found an internship. It's a startup. They had six people working on it. Doing what? Selling theatre tickets. And at what point did you move away from North London? Oh, a long time ago. We we moved to Bermondsey, then we moved to Canary Wharf. Wait, who's we? Me and my ex-husband. Oh, okay. Then in Canary Wharf, he left. And you stayed there? And I stayed in Canary Wharf. And then when did you move to West London? When I was working at this company, the ticketing company. Huh. And... Because that that was in West London, it was just a nightmare to cross. Oh no, sorry, I moved moved to Clapham first. And at what point did you decide I'm going to stay in the UK? I haven't. Ah. (laughs) That hasn't happened yet. Huh. So it was always just like, okay, I'll do this next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then so what was your journey back to psychology? Because you did lots of different things, right? Yeah, so this internship was in marketing. And I stayed there for seven years. And I grew within the company. And by the end, I was head of marketing. And I was getting paid well. And I put a deposit on my flat and stuff. But then... They sold the company to an American company and the culture is just too different and I didn't like it. So they made me redundant. And also I had done a master's in data science because I thought that's what I wanted. True is that I like challenges, you know, I like chess, I like developing, coding was very fun. Statistics is really fun. it calls back the maths, which was fun. Maths per se was fun, not the prospect job prospect was. That was I didn't want. So that kind of um, 
seduced me, you know, and the, the masters itself was really fun to do and really interesting. And But when I tried to find a job as a data scientist, I couldn't find a job, but also because the only f- job they would give me was very junior, which is obvious, but I didn't want to start from a junior position as a junior data scientist. I wanted to be a manager of some sort, but I didn't have the words to apply for the role I wanted. So you studied that while you were working in yeah. your job, yeah. your marketing job? Yeah. And why did you not pursue psychology to begin with? That's a good question. So when I was in Sao Paulo, I had a very good friend who was a Jungian psychologist and an author and everything. And she stopped being a a therapist, a Jungian analyst, when a client of hers came in and she said that she was sexually abused as a child. And now she had a child. She felt like sexually abusing her child. She said that that was too much for her and she quit. So I had that in the back of my mind, thinking, I'm thinking of becoming a therapist, but I don't know what's going to come in. You know, I don't know what people are going to come in with. So I always had that at the back of my mind. And when I was doing the psychology degree, I was kind of hoping that it would prepare me for that. Mm. But nothing did. Mm. Nothing from my psychology degree prepared me to sit with a person in a consulting room, listening to them, mm-hmm. feeling compassionate about it. Mm. So then I thought that the problem was me mm. and gave up on the idea. I just thought I wasn't suited. Mm. Enjoyed everything that I learned, but I thought I'm not, I'm not suited. That's just not for me. I'm going to do data science instead, or marketing instead, or coding, or math, or whatever. Maybe that's the side of me that will uh, lead me to a a peaceful career. And what were you motivated at the point that you were your first job and working your way up in that marketing role? Well, money, recognition, the fact that I could do it, I found it easy. It came natural to me. I just kind of got on with stuff. I didn't find it difficult. But in terms of the bigger picture of your life? I was a stepping stone, yeah, definitely. Some, but I didn't know what stepping stone to what. And you wanted to make money or... Like, did you... Was it about proving yourself or being independent or like... Being independent. Be independent, definitely. Making enough money so I could make myself a, a foundation from which I could then be independent. From men? From men, yeah, from family. I mean, I didn't have anyone and I knew I didn't have a man either. So there was nothing for me to be dependent on. I knew that I had to do it alone. Well, I mean, because you could have just found someone else but it was like with my luck at the time I didn't think I would huh so it was re- it was like a survival thing yeah there was no at no point I even thought I would ever remarry you know I, I didn't even think I would ever find anyone huh I had a strong belief that I just wouldn't find anyone suitable 
mostly because I wasn't suitable. That was how I saw myself. Huh. And did you feel like a failure from your marriage? Definitely, yeah. And it was like there was something wrong with you and that's why it didn't work or something. Yeah, definitely. Huh. And did you find, like, what was kind of the picture you had for your life or you were just figuring it out? Yeah, I was figuring it out. Um, I thought in the process of working, I will find something I like and then I'll go for it. So I started doing some coding, minimal coding and enjoying it and think, oh, maybe that's where I want to go. I can use my math skills with coding that equals data science, you know. Maybe that's interesting, something that's high in demand, I will go for that. And you thought you'd find meaning as well in your work? Yeah, in a statistical way. Because <laughs> it is interesting, I mean, my, my psychology degree was heavily statistical, and that is fun, right, to get numbers and find things out. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but I mean in the broader scheme, if people are like, oh, what I want to do with my life is have a family or meet, and like if you thought, well, I'm never going to meet someone, Yeah. you thought, and and you're living away from Brazil and whatever, you like, I'll find purpose and, cause, and being someone that you thought about philosophy and what meaning is. Yes. So that's an interesting point, because I got to a point where I was doing the masters I wanted. I had the job that I wanted. I had the salary I wanted. I could go out, eat, I could buy any clothes I wanted. I had put the deposit on my flat. I, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. I didn't enjoy going out for dinner with people for the sake of it just because the restaurant was expensive or good I didn't enjoy buying clothes I didn't I, I there was a lot still from my mom my brother my sister they are there in Brazil they are in trouble I have enough money for me but I don't have enough to solve their problems because there's a different level of money that you needed like hundreds of thousands of pounds which I wouldn't have. But could money even solve that? Like you need more than money. I guess you always think that money can solve everything in a way, you know, maybe it's a wishful thinking thing. Yeah. So I always felt kind of inadequate for not being able to help my mom. Um, So I always kind of feeling really all of those emotions and feeling inadequate, feeling that I was lazy feeling that I wasn't dedicated, that maybe all I got was because I was lucky or attractive and thinking the moment I'm no longer attractive, I'm doomed. I better make money while I'm attractive because later on people are not going to give me the same opportunities. Um, I better find a partner, you know, I better... um, I was a ball of nerves. And I was deeply unhappy and I was taking antidepressants and they were not doing anything. And I was trying therapy left, right and center and he wasn't doing anything. How old were you at this point? Oh, this is between 
Huh. And you were seeing that guy at some point in this? That was at the start, yeah. So, you know, kind of from the start, I was getting all I wanted, but I was deeply unhappy. So unhappy that I just had to cry sometimes, you know. Sometimes I would just run myself a bath and cry. Nothing had happened. I just knew that I was lost, that it was my soul was lost. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. And how... <laughs> I almost feel like it needs to be like, okay, come back for part three when it's like... Because <laughs> obviously there's so much more to this. And I'm also like, how was... You know, how often were you going home and like what was your relationship like with your mom? Well, it improved, point? improved. So, um, relationship improved. I went back every two years, but there was no phone calls. Like, my mom hardly ever really said anything when you were not there. And she was getting better? No, she was getting worse. She got better and then she got worse. She stopped drinking a long time ago. But, but then she became depressed after a long after a while and stopped getting at, leaving the house. And that's what killed her. Huh. And were your siblings still in that town with her? They all moved to Florianopolis because that's where my brother wanted to live and my sister wanted to live. They liked the beach, which is fair enough. And did you feel bad that you weren't there with mm, your mom? Yes. All the time, yes. They didn't make you feel bad? No. They are very good people. They are so sweet. No. Okay, so how did you turn things around? By the way, I was thinking with that, um, that sexual abuse thing it's like with IFS it's like you have the framework right? I'll go back to that so the, what turned my life around was the driving test <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it was this driving test eh? there's a funny thing about it so I decided I had my, return, my redundancy payment I could buy a car I wanted to buy a car I had to get my driving less, my driving test now. Had to do it. So I went to Kings Lynn, did a seven day intensive for automatic because I thought it's easier. And on the last day of the test, this last day of the course, like tomorrow is the test. I was a ball of nerves. I'm never going to pass this test. I'm already, I already know I'm not going to be able to sleep. And I was walking from the driving place back to the hotel I walked past the hypnotherapist office and I knocked and I asked if she had a, a slot and I explained and she said yes yeah, sure come in let's do it now and did she you know did about hypnotherapy no but you just thought this person can help me I, was I had desperate. no option yeah it was desperate I was, that this is something I could if there's anything that I can do at this point this is it and she did, and I passed. What did what happened in that session? 
I don't remember much, but I remember her desensitizing me from the test itself, you know, taking me to a safe space and then walking me with my imagination through the test, saying that during the test I would be relaxed and comfortable, relaxed and confident, and it would be fine, and I had nothing to worry, I I already knew how to drive, I'll just drive like all the other days that I did. You know, I gave her a lot of background. I would just be the same like another day um, of test, uh, another driving lesson day, you know, just do the same. The the examiner is going to be very nice and patient and understanding and, you know, and just kind of primed. So when I went, it did. It was no problem. I just drove and passed, no problem. I didn't even feel a hint of emotion. And then I thought, ah, there is something here. There's something powerful here. <laughs> huh. And then what? Then I started researching hypnotherapy, hypnotherapy, hypnotherapy. Then I found online this course. Um, uh, if you don't like it, we'll give you money back in 30 days. It was expensive. It was like two and a half thousand pounds. Um, it was during the pandemic. It took me a while to take action. Huh. So what were you doing in between that? I was doing marketing consultancy, trying to trying and failing to get a data science job and then doing marketing jobs. And then... But, and you were still unhappy? I was unhappy. And also I, don't, I didn't want to work for anyone anymore, not even as a consultant. I thought, I want to work for myself. I want to be, have client a direct relationship with my clients. I don't want anyone in between. But I think at the back of my mind, there's always been, I want to be a therapist, I want to be a therapist. You know, like there always has been there. So the hypnotherapy seemed like a more acceptable route. How come? Because hypnotherapy is more um, solution focused, you know. Stop smoking, fear of driving, fear of fly, you know, it felt like, oh, somehow people wouldn't come to me with many difficult issues. Huh, because you were still scared of... I was still scared, yeah. No, I wasn't, felt unprepared completely, right? Still. So I did this hypnotherapy course and it was lovely and it was uh, very thorough and um, it took me a year to complete... It was great. I've learned a lot. I became calmer. I became more, you know, everything became easier. But I need. I knew there was something missing. I still didn't feel confident that if someone walked up to me and said, I've been sexually abused as a child, that how I would react. I still didn't think I would be able to hold that information. So then I looked for a new course because I knew there was something big missing. If I can't hold everyone, you know, if, if someone, if I'm scared of what the person is going to tell me, I shouldn't be here. So I found this other course, which is a person-centered uh, course, and I did that. And the person-centered approach taught me this um, compassion, you know. And then I found the IFS. And the IFS goes straight into trauma and straight into, you know, sexual abuse is almost always there, you know, throughout the whole of the lectures that I've watched. 
uh, I bought a course online and I watched hours and hours of IFS sessions and sexual abuse was a lot of the time, you know, it came up a lot of the time, it came up a and and then one day I did get, you know, but I was already asking my clients, my hypnotherapy clients, would you be willing to try this method that I've learned because I think it's very powerful and they would go, yes, and then I'll do it and they'll go, I'm glad we did that. So I became more and more confident and then sooner, pretty soon, I started getting sexual abuse victims and it was no problem at all. Nothing, I think, you can bring in this room that will feel too much for me. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of how I found out about IFS, which is really funny. It was from Gwyneth Paltrow's podcast, the group podcast. Really? Richard Schwartz was on it. Because he oh. goes on so many podcasts. And he's talking about murderers and mm. rapists and that, that type of thing. So I think whenever... I talk about it I'm like oh it's this really helpful model that explains how all of us are and it can explain like how you know someone can murder someone or whatever it's like for me I think it's always had that like extreme it's like this covers everything from like the most extreme and I think that's maybe what's even given me the courage on this podcast to be like I'm interested in understanding like all kinds of people who you know someone who just came out of prison and him talking about even though it is still like confronting for someone talking about Mm. a murder or something like that Mm. it gives you this it's like you can be with the like it's safe to be with that part yeah i think sexual abuse though that was someone on this podcast talked about sexual sexual abuse i think i've never heard because, you know, people talk openly about being suicidal or, or going to end their life or taking, you know, overdosing or whatever, taking drugs or, yeah, or... But then the sexual abuse, it was like... I think that's the first time I've ever heard someone reveal that and then I kind of didn't know. Well, I guess I didn't know, like... Because I'm probably pretty comfortable asking people about depression or whatever, but, uh-huh. yeah. I think it's because sexual abuse carries a lot of shame. Mm. And feelings of shame are just destroying. They're destroying. They're, they're the most painful emotion you can experience, I think, shame. And mm. that's why it's so difficult for people to bring it out. Hmm. They just feel completely ashamed. Hmm. It's very, very difficult, isn't it? Something mm. religious, maybe. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. Sexuality is still a heavy even though we say oh we're liberated are we really no. you know yeah I remember googling that's really weird but I remember googling that once of like when did human like humans compared to other animals don't have shame around sex right they just have sex in public mm. in wherever they are in the wild mm. 
they're not like, oh, we need to be have privacy. And I was like, at what point did humans evolve to like have privacy around mm. that stuff? As in, even like in a consensual. Mm. I mean, yeah, I'm obviously not saying like abuse people in private or at all, but. Because I think, yeah, because even with violence, it's interesting because with violence, it's like that's sensation. Like that's like all in films and books and people like love listening to like true crime and like really messed up stuff, which I'm kind of like, why? Like, is this really good for our psyche? But it's weird because with sexual trauma, it's not like that. Cause, yeah, because... It's very deep, like you're describing growing up and violence in the household and drinking and stuff. And people are familiar with, like, people view this, like, on TV all the time, this type of stuff. Hmm. It's interesting because in, in the biblical sense, when we came down from the Garden of Eden, we started covering ourselves. Is that then the birth of shame in the sense that we experience it is that what makes us who we are is that how our society organized itself because of shame that self-awareness you know I'm naked Ooh, what what does it mean to be naked it's shameful isn't it hmm Interesting. Because I guess some groups of people don't have that as much, right? In some, like, tribe still. Shame is completely subjective. Right? There's nothing objective about it. Yeah, that's pro- that's one of the most powerful things that you taught me about. Because unburdening a part that was carrying shame and it was like, well, maybe a thinking part came in or something and it was like, what's the point of this? The shame is just going to be there. But you like, no, it's like, it's like a virus that spreads. But when we release it, like it's gone forever and you're not going to feel it anymore. And it was so crazy because that's what (laughs) happened. And that, yeah, I kind of have had conversations with people around that when they feel... Because often, yeah, it's that thing of, like, I'm bad. Like, I've done something so bad. And now I'm like, no, you probably haven't. Hmm. And even if it is some... Even if you actually have done something bad, it's like you're still a human, like every single other human. So... But actually, it might be, like, it wasn't bad. Hmm. Yeah, because I was carrying shame around stuff that was, like, not... I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. Which maybe that was like your childhood, that it's like you're made to believe. Yeah, and it was a source of shame, which is why it was inaccessible to me. Too painful. Shame's too painful. Sure, I think back in the day, we needed to shame each other for bad behavior because bad behavior wasn't acceptable in a little tribe, hunter-gatherer tribe. But if you read the games people play, is it Eric Byrne, I think? Yeah, so he explains the nature of games, how we mostly 
unconscious because we just learn down the generations. So we kind of have coping strategies to live in society as groups and shame is a powerful thing to stop one of them taking more food or, or you know, mostly kind of trying to make it fair by using shame. But I think now we passed that, haven't we? Yeah. Well, maybe you still need it for like hurting children or stuff like that. I would kind of really hope that we can move past shame so we can do things because we want to, because we understand what it is not to cause harm. If, you, if you're working on the basis of shame, then you will not cause harm in front of people, so you look good. Does mm. that make sense? So, shame is a social thing. You wouldn't feel shame if you were alone and no one knew what you did. Yeah. But if you know what you did, and if that doesn't feel good, then don't do it. But yeah. because you want to, not because you feel shame. And then I guess we just need tools to for situations when people have something missing in their brain or something when they can't understand that they're doing something bad. They don't feel shame, yeah. Like if you're like a psychopath or something, murdering someone and you to have no remorse. But if you read about psychopaths and listen to... Uh, you know, there are some people who have been diagnosed with psychopathy, but they have a voice. They're not evil. Emotions do guide us, yes, towards what's right and wrong, like compassion, for example, right? And it's true that extreme um, rationality leads to unreason, right? So if you're completely rational, you may come to certain conclusions but you wouldn't act on them because they are unreasonable. So there is an element of emotion that guides us, but we also have a very conscious understanding of the world. And if you look from the point of fairness, you understand that harming people is not a good thing. So you have the choice not to do it, even if you don't feel bad about it. So is in a way taking shame out of the equation would uh, help us become more to have more clarity to think more clearly and you know just just evolve yeah okay yeah 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 no need for shame because i think it's also that makes stuff worse, right? When it's mm. like someone's done something wrong and then they're shamed mm. and then they're like a non-human or there's some other. Mm. And then what are they supposed to do? They're like not part of the tribe. So why would they then conform to the tribe? Whereas mm. if it's... So that's more like rehabilitation or whatever, mm. like approaching it with compassion. You know, like yeah. people in prison who have done really bad things. But yeah. it's like instead of like they're going to be outside forever which kind of doesn't even make sense because it's like you're spending money to like keep these people miserable hmm. 
like if you're gonna spend money why wouldn't you spend it to like it's very primitive I think shame shaming you know the whole shaming thing mm. and feeling shame because then we do what we do in a macro level we do on a micro level as well so that's what's happening at home you know and that's what's happening internally you know I'm shaming my parts that do something that I don't approve of mm. so I'm gonna real. exile them sorry <laughs> this is a massive tangent but it's so interesting on Twitter I was having this conversation with these with this with these people who there was this lynching in um, Palestine a month ago or something and it was and these people were saying I was like oh my god this is terrible like this is awful like you'd see the image of these people like the whole thing of them being executed publicly by this mob and then the people I was having this conversation with people who like didn't understand like they were like obviously like this person has is a traitor like they've shared they're a spy they've shared information with Israel and I was like immediately like outraged like how can you think like killing someone in the street but then it was like that was me being like your like then I took time to like understand this person like hang on this person genuinely believes that and they were like confused they were like what would you do and it was like you need a fair trial and I'm like okay but even if there was a fair trial they would be guilty so obviously you kill them but it was like there was no and I don't know it was so interesting because from like the immediate reaction is like you're just like a terrible person that you like how could you even think like this but then it's like hang on this is person is like very genuinely doesn't understand like and it, it's like that's their view and by approaching it with they were actually like interested in like learning or like having conversation and I don't know it was just like something about like that's actually how you can progress by being like I couldn't convince that person by being like you're wrong because that would be shaming yes yes you have the wrong views yes but it's like hang on like I actually have to come at it with like understanding in order to influence them to it's really hard because we're brought up on shame so patience is really difficult Compassion is difficult. We live in fear. We live in fear of being shamed. Mm. That in, that means it's we struggle to make genuine connections. We struggle to open up to be genuine. Huh. Yeah. Is that maybe why people don't? Because I've noticed it's like people can struggle to disagree like now I'm doing this thing where I'm being like it's good to disagree (laughs) like you should welcome like people have different Mm. views and like you can discuss them and like it can be totally amicable because it's almost like people like oh this might be wrong like people seem sensitive to like understand how the other person thinks first before sharing Mm. Mm. which that's probably about shame of shame of having the wrong view or something oh yeah and it depends on your household as well so if you were brought up by people who made it so 
you're, it's good when you're right and it's wrong when you're wrong, it means that you're stupid. If you're wrong, you're stupid, you should be ashamed. Then you bring that up as being wrong is shameful. So you're not going to take the risk, the stakes are too high. Mm. Shame is just terrible, it's just really painful, almost unbearable. So you won't take risks when it comes to it. Hmm. Okay, that was a tangent. But how did you... So at what point did you stop feeling really depressed? Because you were... You haven't said it now, but you were like... Got to points of like extremely depressed, mm-hmm. right? When mm-hmm. it was like, what's the point in continuing? Yeah. Yeah, I hoarded some pills, but I, there's this curious part of me that's like, well, before you do that, let's just go to Thailand. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Before you do that, let's go to Thailand, blow all the money, and then you can decide if you still want to do it. I'm like, oh yeah, that's actually a really good idea. (laughs) <laughs> wow when was that well I couldn't find a job for 18 months and I thought that my life was over and but you're doing the marketing consulting yeah but the, I've, the marketing consultants was at the end of the 18 months so for 18 months I couldn't find any work at all and um, that was so destroying now I don't see it that way, but at the time it was thinking, so I did a master's, I did a degree, I have 10 years experience and I can't find a job, then how does that work? What did I do? And every day you're spending just looking for jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of applications. And you had a mortgage at that point? Yes. I had my my uh, redundancy money, which is exactly what it's for, because it's not easy to get money when you've been redundant to get a job. And also, I didn't realize, but there was an impact of my age and gender, and I had one recruiters asking, are you going to have children soon? So, you know, I knew that was a thing as well. Even though you were single? Yeah. Um... So yeah, that was pretty tough. And um, but then I went to Thailand. I did my yoga teaching course, and it was great. And that changed me. Thailand changed me. One of first of all is perspective. It's like this is the opposite of luxury. I was sleeping on a cabin that just had two beds, um, and it was really hot. And you know, it was all stripped down to basics. And I felt like everyone else. I wasn't a boss, you know, I was just one of the 12 girls that were there. And that felt really nice. I forgot what that was like because I was just being a boss and everyone kind of tiptoeing around me. And there people were just talking to me like no one, you know, like I was nobody, which generally I am nobody. So it brought me down to earth. And it made me reassess what was important. And I 
So it's important to be part of a group. It's important to be equal. It's important to be humble. I wasn't humble. I was too hurt to be humble, too scared to be humble. What, you really arrogant? I was, yeah, I was actually. I think I was. Huh. Because it, the reasoning is like, oh, I worked so hard to be here, you know, so don't talk to me like that. But then being equal with everyone else, I, I realized actually that doesn't benefit me at all. It, it just creates a distance between me and other people, which is the opposite of what I want. Huh. So I was able to realize that I had this attitude, which I didn't realize at the time, and then drop it. You had that attitude to people below you or above you? Oh, oh. yeah, everybody. <laughs> everybody. It was like, oh, I, I worked so hard, I deserve to be here. Um, you know, there's, there's it. I'm not going to take any shit. No, I take a lot more shit. Not a lot more, but more, yeah. I'm more selective. More selective to when I step up or not. But generally, I want to be closer to people. I will not respond to every misunderstanding, you know, kind of will be very forgiving, very understanding. I'll look for clarity. I'll I will keep the connection going if I can, even if I think I'm right, you know. Yeah, it's like the flexible boundary thing. Oh, okay. Or it's like, there's this analogy thing. I love that it's like be the peach, not the clam. So a peach is like soft on the outside, but like really tough on the inside. Mm. So it's like you have firm boundaries. Like Mm. you know what you deserve and you won't let people walk over you but you don't need to be like aggressive that's you can exactly be like, right like really lovely kind person like people don't need yeah. to know yeah that underneath you're like you're a fucking idiot like you don't have yeah. to say that to someone because yeah. that's and then the clam is like hard on the outside super yes. hard which i think people can have the overreaction when they they don't have boundaries and then they're like okay I'm gonna have boundaries like no fuck you I'm not gonna like and they don't compromise at all but then you're yeah. just actually inside you're like soft and cause vulnerable yeah that's exactly right that's a good um, that's a wonderful metaphor because I was that I was soft in the inside very vulnerable carrying a lot of shame carrying a lot of feelings of being inadequate and that the world was unfair and then in the outside it was tough but then that trip to Thailand made me feel actually it's okay to be soft. But I knew I had a lot to heal. I just didn't know how. I didn't know it was even possible. And what point was that in the 18 months? It's still ongoing. But I mean the yoga trip. The yoga trip was... Um, maybe oh I don't know exactly it was um, it was at the six months maybe because I went to Thailand when I came back everything was in lockdown oh 
And then I was going to be a yoga teacher. I couldn't be a yoga teacher because there was no yoga happening. Huh. So then you were still looking for the data science job. Yeah, I was basically hoping to find something I could do remote. Huh. And then you got the marketing consultancy. At the end of lockdown, a year later. And when did you, when did the hypnosis thing happen? Before all this? I started considering during it. And I possibly started the course in before the end of the 18 months. But I wasn't taking it that seriously. I didn't think I would. Uh-huh. I but, just had a lot of time. Yeah, okay. But you'd done the driving test or whatever before all the Yeah, I did the driving test before. That was the first thing I did. As soon as I was made redundant, that was the first thing I did. Because I just really wanted a car. It was my dream. Wow. Huh. So this was like a whole journey during lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Lots of time to think, I guess. And then when did you feel like you found the path? When I found IFS. Oh. Before IFS, I didn't know what I was doing. But you took some clients? Yeah, I did on the basis of the hypno-CBT that I was taught. And this is after lockdown? Yeah. But I always felt that there was something missing. And then you found IFS? Yeah. How long ago was that? I I saw the day I saw the webinar. It's more than two years ago now. 2021. And since then it's been like, this is the direction. Yes, I was discouraged out of it for a while by the course I'm doing on in favor of other techniques, you know, they're like, no, you need to do... And then I did, but then I thought, mm, no, no. It's good to know all the other techniques and everything, and I can do that, I can use those techniques with the parts, but I need to go into parts before we do anything else. Or at least, you know, I need to get... I, I think that the most powerful intervention is to separate from the parts, just to create that relationship with your parts, you know, like, this is not me. I am something, and then I have those parts. And from that point, on, point onwards, everything is so much easier. But if you don't get to that understanding then you're talking to someone who is still contradicting themselves and confused and, you know, just... So for me, it's important to get to that point where we separate from the parts. And then just that by itself changes how your body responds because before you were just very sure. I'm angry right now. I'm really sure that I need to be angry. Now it's like, oh, part of me is angry. Your body goes... Should I be angry? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> it's part of me. What does that mean? You know, so you 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 don't get that brush of anger like you did before. And yeah, so I discovered since I've realized that there is no point for me not to do it. 
because I feel like I'm not going to be honest. I'm, I'm not being genuine and and um, straightforward if I don't do it. And I mean, is that the point when you discovered that? Is that the point when you're like, okay, now my life is making sense and this is... Yes. I accepted a lot of spirituality that I have completely closed off for many years, you know, um, when I came to yoga, actually. I went very skeptical to that course and I came out with a lot of questions. That was very important. And then those questions opened up a whole world for me. Well, before I was sure, you know, oh, this is what it is, I'm sure. I'm so sure of everything, I'm sure of myself, but feeling terrible. And now you feel... Oh, I feel so much better. I feel so much better. I'm not sure what's going on at all. You know, I kind of also don't really feel the need to know everything. I have more questions every day. Um, I'm taking a very loose approach to things, you know, kind of observant rather than judging. You know, I'm observing a lot more. I'm taking it in a lot more. I'm having more doubt. Doubt, doubt, doubt. I think that's very important. And you're excited for what the future holds? Yes, I am. Are you? Are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for what your future holds. Well, thank you. Like, it feels like it's just the beginning. Yeah, it is. I mean, you did catch me at post-IFS, you know, session, which was really nice. And I always feel very nice after for a while. I'm sure there will be something else coming up later. But right now I feel pretty good. It was a big relief to understand the past. Even if it's all just imagination, it doesn't matter to me. What matters is that, you know, I feel I feel more calm. I feel more patient. I feel more understanding towards people. I don't get irritated with them so much. It helps my relationships. It, it helps. I did this four-week work with a group of people, which went really well. If that was three, four years ago, I don't think that would have been so well, so easy. Because there were very, there were very stressful moments and I was able to be stressed and still be kind mm. before that was unknown to me. As soon as I went, as soon as I was stressed, I would become aggressive. Mm. But I was able to hold, you know, understanding and patience and calm, even though when things seemed to be falling apart. I think it's probably going to be very difficult for anyone listening to this podcast to imagine you being aggressive, as it is for me as well. Really? Oh, well, if anyone knew me before listening to this, they will not understand what's going on. <laughs> They're thinking, who? who? Huh. I am ashamed of who I was. How I was. Not who I was, how I was. In many occasions. 
But in a compassionate way. In a compassionate way, yes. Without the shame. Well, I still have a little bit of shame, you know. I look back and I think, oh, no. You know, I just really wish I didn't say those things or didn't didn't say those things that basically but then that's something you can work on right yeah I I can I I am working on it working on being the best version the kindest version yeah but I mean maybe if there's a part of you that Sorry, this is just funny because I'm like, <laughs> you're the psychologist. But that wants you to, su- that you think you're not allowed to forgive yourself, or that. I'm nothing that you're not. You, you have a lot of insight. I respect that. Um, what did you say, part of me? If there's part of you, like, you feel like you can't release that because part of you thinks that you still should suffer for the bad behaviour or something. Much more subtle than that. It's just a feeling at the moment. It's just a little, you know, in my heart, like, oh, I say those things. I don't have the whole process laid out yet. It's something to visit, certainly. Mm. But I don't have it yet. It's just mm. that a little, a little knot, you know, like something that feels. Mm. And I know it's shame. Yeah. It's so interesting when people just don't, like they just don't have shame. Like there's nothing they could be embarrassed or. I feel like, I don't know, the people that immediately come to mind are all men. <laughs> but I'm like, how do they... Like, they can write something straight. Because mine is more like, I'll write, I'll share things or write something, and then it will be like, oh, my God, this is so cringe. Like, what are people going to think, blah, blah, blah. And then I know people who, they just, like, could not give a fuck. And I'm like, they're so much freer. I don't know, because I thought I didn't carry any shame. And then I was surprised to find out that I carried a lot of shame. Huh. So I think that when you act overconfidently, it might be a compensation. Huh. There is some process there. It's like layers. Yeah. Sometimes it's even some sort of delusion, you know. You just tell yourself a story and you go for Mm. that story. And the story could be like, what people think doesn't matter to me. Mm. You know, I don't care what they think or something like that. We don't know. Mm. only the person working through all these processes will understand Mm. well they say psychopaths feel no shame no guilt you know I don't know much about that but I wonder if that's just so strong for them that they block it out Mm. who knows Mm. but yeah I guess the only thing I can do is like if I want to feel more free to um yeah to not have that part of me come up then it's like okay I can work with that or maybe create new stories that help me or something and also being able to hold the shame 
is the hardest, but that is the possibly the healthiest. Because you will, mm. I don't think we'll ever get rid of shame. It's just letting your system know that it is okay to feel shame for a while will be very uncomfortable it's very painful it's terrifying but you're strong and you can cope yes oh my god this is so interesting because this is i met some i met a really young founder who is like has raised all this money is managing all these people and he's like really young and he was saying like there's one part of him that's like what am I doing like mm. I'm employ all these people who like have 20 years more experience than me but then he was like no but then I just say like I'm a god like I'm this I'm this and I was like oh my god these are like these two parts but actually neither is the answer because you're not a god like you are actually human and it's good to be have some doubt because otherwise you'd be like a full like narcissist or whatever it is like you'd be delusional Hmm. so it was like the way to handle it is to know that's like a voice and Mm. it's just a part of you and it's like Mm. sit with it and it's Mm. okay and it because it was like no but if you accept it was like all these people had the same view that they're like no because if you listen to that voice it becomes true and like you become weak and like you have to shut it out and suppress it i was like yeah that's never gonna work we are all delusional most of the time it's only rare that we get moments of clarity. When you sit down and I think listening to the parts, that's when you get some clarity and you can see, oh yeah. But still, like we are imaginative beings. We are just, we are crazy. We, <laughs> we are completely delusional most of the time. And create stories. Yeah. Like oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, that's why I I think the most important thing is to have doubts, like you said. Just have doubts. Just being very sure is very dangerous. Mm. But yeah, there's probably a lot of convincing to, for some people who will think that makes them weak or. Yes. Yes, there is fear of doubt fear of compassion because yeah fear of feeling vulnerable and this is probably I'm just thinking of like all the stuff that goes on in the world in the world with power and conflict and like is that like for a dictator who it's like they need to believe those things like if they had any it's like that's what's holding the whole thing together for them to have that much power over so many people and also the belief that you're right it has to be a strong belief that you are on the right side of things Mm. you're morally correct morally superior Mm. because there has to be a moral element Huh. So even when it's like they're causing like millions of people to starve to death, it's still it's justified it's... because it's morally con- morally superior, it's morally right. You know, it's for the good, it's for the greater good. Hmm. I don't think anyone engages in that sort of behavior if they 
don't believe is for the greater good. Mm. Mm. Oh, okay. Sorry, we've gone super long. I guess we can edit. You can edit it. No, I never edited it. Okay, but is there anything else before we wrap up? No. Anything reflecting on the first episode or not? Or where can people find you if you want them to find you all? Um, they can find me from my website, which will be on the notes, I guess. And my phone number is there, my email is there. I think the social media link's in there, but I don't really look at social media very much, so... Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also, um, a random 23-year-old just messaged me on Instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm. So it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow. And then you get to find out about future episodes as well. Review or rate, you know what I mean. Anyway, it would truly make my day. So thank you in advance.